The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location in Queens Village, Philadelphia. In 1844, Philadelphia was at a breaking point as angry Protestant nativists began to openly demonstrate against their new Irish Catholic neighbors. It was here, in the neighborhoods of Southwark and Kensington, that the two groups finally came to blows. After days of fighting, churches were burned, homes were destroyed, and people were left dead. Now, with immigration front and center in the 2016 presidential race, the lessons of the Kensington and, and Southwark riots are more relevant than ever before. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the Philadelphia nativist riots is professor of religious studies at St. Joseph's University, Katie Ox, and author Ken Milano. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Katie, if we could talk, talk first, uh, how did you first become involved in this time period? Well, Philadelphia in the 19th century is, I think, one of the most fascinating places and times in American history because this is where the idea of America began. This is where questions about citizenship, about who belongs, about what this American experiment was going to be and who it should include and who it should not include. So I think if you're going to start asking the kinds of questions that I think are interesting here is absolutely the place to look at. I, uh, I'm a local historian. I, I specialize in the areas of Kensington and Fishtown, Fishtown being the oldest part of Kensington. And in the normal process of just researching these uh, neighborhoods of Philadelphia, I came across the riots. And, and being Catholic and part Irish, actually, even though my name might be Milano, I got an O on the end instead of the front. I have an Irish grandma. So it, it was interesting. I found it very interesting. And, but all the literature I came across dealing with the riots was always the big picture. Uh, what did it mean in America type stuff uh, that this was going on. And I, uh, I wanted to see the small picture. So I looked at the, the local aspects of it. Could we say Philadelphia had a difficult history with immigration from early on? Uh, I, I found that to be true. In uh, Elizabeth uh, Drinker uh, Diary in eight, 1798, St. Patty's Day, she makes mention of the uh, local Protestants having uh, patties, stuffed little dummy type things uh, on sticks going around the neighborhood, hanging them on lamp posts and stringing rings of potatoes and, and bottles of beer, empty bottles of beer on them. So it wasn't quite you know, friendly towards the Irish Catholics in, in the 18th century. I think we also need to remember though that this was a place that was founded on religious tolerance. 
So even though there are incidents, especially like the Bible riots we're talking about today, but this was a place that was the most diverse religiously place on earth at the time. You know, so although there, there are a lot of incidents that, that betray that diversity and tolerance, it's also a pretty welcoming place for a lot of the time for a lot of people. Let's talk a little bit about the neighborhoods we find ourselves in now. Uh, Ken, what was Kensington like in the 1840s? In the 1840s, the area where uh, the riots took place, West Kensington, Kensington was still a self-governing district, uh, separated by Frankfurt Avenue, East Kensington and West Kensington. It was self-governing from 1820 to 1854 when the whole county was consolidated into the city. East Kensington was a Protestant neighborhood uh, centered around fishing and, and shipbuilding. It was a major shipbuilding and fishing place uh, for the country. And uh, West Kensington was the Irish Catholic neighborhood, a new neighborhood, just, just started in the, in, the, in the early 19th century, the first several decades. And it was the heart of the Irish neighborhood. There's a lot of textile weavers. There was about five different uh, clusters of Irish in, in, in Philadelphia in, in the 19th century. And Kensington was one of the more higher skilled ones, uh, hand weavers versus carters or laborers and stuff like that, coal weavers. This is a story that takes place in two neighborhoods in one year. Uh, what about Southwark, where we are now? The big distinction between what Ken is talking about up in Kensington in the northern section of Philadelphia, or at the time what was not part of Philadelphia, Southwark was similar in that it was not part of the city of Philadelphia. It was its own municipality. But perhaps the big difference was not in terms of class or occupation, but in terms of the fact that the immigrants who were here, the Irish Catholic immigrants who were here, were the, the boundaries between them was not so much between them and Protestants, so much as it was between them and African-American and Afro-Caribbean um, peoples who were in Philadelphia as well. So there was more of some potential for racial tension in Southwark that wasn't in Kensington at the time. Yeah, that, that's very true. Uh Usually when you found an Irish Catholic neighborhood, you had an adjacent African-American community. They tend to be marginalized and pushed to the outskirts, hence in Southwark or Kensington. But up in Kensington, there really wasn't a large African-American uh, presence at all at that time period. When we study the history of immigration, we talk about push factors and pull factors. What was so attractive about Philadelphia that brought so many Irish immigrants to this region? For Kensington, it was the textile industry. Uh, there was a, that was the area that developed as the textile hub for Philadelphia. It became, the, when you talk about Philadelphia's workshop of the world in the later 19th century, Kensington was probably half of that. Uh, in the textile world, it was at least half of that. But early on, when they were still doing hand, hand loom weaving, uh, it, was, it was a very big area for, for, the, for the textile weavers. So jobs and cheap housing. Housing was, wasn't so difficult to own a house. What were the major factors that made the immigrants leave Ireland? Well, we have to remember that the Irish Catholic immigration that is preceding the riots is not yet the Irish famine immigration. I think sometimes it's easy to confuse those things because the Irish famine immigration happens pretty much immediately following the riots. But up until then, there were actually more Irish Protestants coming into Philadelphia than there were Irish Catholics. But the Catholic numbers writ large, not just Irish, but across the board were really beginning to rise. So um, we, we just need to make sure that we don't get it confused with the very large numbers that come in, the tens of thousands of Irish Catholics who come in 
during the famine years immediately following. If you're thinking of a major event that might have pushed people out of Ireland into America, it would have been the failed rebellion in 1798 of the United Irishmen, an attempt by middle-class Protestant Irish to organize the Irish as a whole to fight the British. Because even though I'm a wealthy Protestant Irishman in Ireland, I'm still under the thumb of the British crown, and I didn't like that. So the, uh, the, uh, there was some type of uh, attempt to, to, to organize and to, and to fight the English, but it, they were sort of found out before they really had a chance to get off, 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 off the ground, and, and, and they were suppressed dramatically. And that was a, a big out-migration reason, uh, and a lot of those folks came to Philadelphia. Now, throughout American history, we have these immigration debates all different times, uh, from the 18th to the 21st century. There's always a sense that uh, the existing population is being infringed upon or that their traditional way of life is being taken over. What did the Irish bring with them from the old world that they supplanted here in North America? Like a lot of immigrant groups, I think they were probably willing to work for a little cheaper. That sort of outraged locals, you know, just the way it does. I mean, that's, that's the reason we give today. Oh, they're, you know, they work for cheap. Oh no, they're doing jobs that Americans won't. You know, that whole debate sort of was sort of going on too. You know, but they were also political. The Irish are political animals. They got involved in politics, and, and the nativists, who what came to be known as the nativists, didn't like the fact that you know after five years they're citizens and they can be voting and taking over their neighborhood. You know, so, so that was a big problem. That was one of the, the real big problems. Their political involvement. I think religiously, again, we sometimes end up thinking about what we know today of Irish Catholicism and think that that was the kind of Catholicism that came with immigrants in the 1820s, 30s, 40s. Um, but it wasn't, you know, this, this thing that's called the devotional revolution had not yet happened in Ireland that created the kind of Irish Catholicism that we now know today. So they were bringing things that are more, perhaps if we could make a comparison, it might be in the ways that Italian Catholicism is looked at today. You know, these more local elements and, um, you know, worshiping at shrines, forms of popular religiosity, as we say, that they would have brought with them, but that would have been fairly quickly suppressed by both the institutional church in Philadelphia, as well as the changes in Irish Catholicism in general that are gonna cross the Atlantic. We've mentioned Catholicism. We're in front of a Catholic church. It is a big part of the story. Uh, what does Catholicism mean to these immigrants? You said it's a, it's a different kind than we generally think. So can you talk about how it was built into their identity? It completely depends. You know, the, the motivations for people to use institutions like a religious institution are so varied. You know, for some folks, this would have been a, a place to have access to an, a, a social network for jobs, for housing, etc. For some people, it would have been a place for religious worship. Um, but again, the Irish Catholics at the time were not this sort of, you know, 100% churched and, you know, very devout kinds of people. They were regular people, and some of them were devout and would go to church regularly, and some of them weren't. Some of them would be thinking about just meeting other immigrants there and using this as a way of of building social capital when they arrived. Uh, speaking to the, the social networking aspect of it, in, in Philadelphia here, out at the Archdiocese Archives, we have a large set of volumes of the Bishop's Bank books. And in there, when you read through those, it's all these Irish immigrants starting in the, in the, in the 1840s, going up to the 1870s. And, uh, and they're leaving money in these accounts with notes. So-and-so can draw from it, and so-and-so can't draw from it. 
And, and some of these people are just leaving money in the account and then moving on. St. Louis, Pittsburgh, who knows where they're going. But there's, a, there's this place, you know, that, that they can find them. And, and they don't give their Philadelphia addresses. A lot of times they give their town back in Ireland where they're from. So, you know, and so it's like the long, the long reach of the church can come over here and, and, and have this network set up for people to, 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 to use, to, to, to go on. Now, a lot of this goes back well, far beyond our scope, but was it fair to say that there's always a sense amongst, amongst the Anglo community that the Catholic Church is somehow pervasive into their society when immigrants come in? Uh, where does that fear stem from, and was it justified? It comes from the Protestant Reformation, certainly, um, and from the tensions between those who were inside of the Western Christian Church at the time and wanted to do things differently. You know, as we get closer to the riots, certainly one of the big issues is about um, not just interpretation of the Bible, but the ability to sort of approach the Bible as an individual rather than through the lens and control and teachings of the institutional church. Um, but it, it certainly all comes out of the 16th century Protestant Reformation and the European, European conflicts. There. Uh, when you look back in the history of Ireland and the church and, and, and their fight with England, when Cromwell conquered Ireland, uh, when he went over after the English, when the English Civil War was going on, the Irish had a little more freedom. After the Civil and, and they actually rebelled and for a moment were in control of their own destiny, for a moment. And, and then uh, after the Civil War was ended in England, Cromwell came over and just put his foot on Ireland and outlaw Catholicism. Catholics weren't even allowed to live in the towns. So, I mean, when you're coming from that kind of background, you know, it's hard to get along. <laughs> well, and, you know, he didn't, I mean, it was a massacre, right? Yeah, a massacre. Um, you know, so, but some of that is also about the politics of, of Britain and about, you know, what's called the planting and the Scots-Irish being planted in, in what is now the Republic of Ireland. Um, and some of that predates the Reformation. A good deal of it actually predates the Reformation and goes back to the politics of empire and colonialism and the English considering the Irish an inferior race. In my reading and uh, doing the research uh, in the riots, there was an Orangeman element to the nativists. And there was a particular family up in Kensington, the Hare family, who were Orangemen. And they were trying to infect the nativists because an Orangeman and the nativists were actually separate groups but they did come together in some aspects, in some families. We just mentioned a term, nativist, nativism. Who was a nativist at this time? Native-born American, and not a Native American, an Indian. Well, and Ken's just brought up some of the political aspects to it, you know, with the Orange Order, who uh, takes their name from William of Orange, who um, very, infamously to some, famously to others, um, stemmed the tide of Catholicism um, and the supporters of James II in, in Ireland in 1690. Um, so there were political elements to nativists, like the Orange Order, like the American Republic Association, like the American Protective Association, but then there were religious aspects to it also. Um, so although the political aspects were anti-immigrant, first and foremost. The religious aspects were anti-Catholic, first and foremost. And they also took in other more formalized organizations, like the American Protestant Association, which was founded here in Philly by 140 Protestant ministers 
to say that Catholics should not be allowed to live here and you know with this laundry list of reasons why um, so it had it had different ways of you know sort of a hydra-headed monster to use like a little bit of a cliched expression but it could pop up at any time with these varying guises in the same way that it does today under varying guises certainly. Yeah, the American Protestant Association you know every Sunday there's guys that be at the at the podium you know preaching anti-popery business and then you had the political aspect of nativists at the bully pulpit you know anti-immigrant business you know uh, 21 you have to be 21 years an American citizen but at that time you had to be 21 years to vote so you're from some backwoods Ireland country place it takes it'll take you 21 years to even understand what democracy means so you should have to be a citizen for 21 years before you know so that's five years to get be a citizen then 21 more years you're here 26 years before you can vote you know and then but they didn't want uh, immigrants to hold any position, not just the president of the United States, but all the way down the line. You know? so. Well, on this democracy question, it wasn't even just, you know, it might take you 21 years. There was also a sense, especially against Catholics, that they were never going to be able to understand <laughs> democracy. 21 years or, you know, 100 years. They, by nature of the fact that they were Catholics, they would always follow the Pope and never be able to think for themselves. Exactly. When the basis of the American experiment and American democracy and American republicanism is to be able to think for yourself. So it was playing a bit of both sides there. So there was a very real sense that Protestantism and American democracy were almost one yes. and the same. Synonymous. Synonymous. Whenever we deal with politics, we always hear a lot of uh, eloquent arguments, even when they don't necessarily hold up. And the nativists had a lot of what they believed to be good reasons for keeping the Irish away or keeping them out. What were some of the things they were saying back then? Well, the Bible riots was the big one. That sort of precedes the, uh, well, or is the nativist riots. Uh, in, in March, well, it actually happened maybe several years before, but the, uh, the Catholics wanted to read their own Bible. At that time, and it's hard to believe today, but the King James Bible was, well, Bible was required reading material, as you know, said by the state legislature, you know. And, and there was time, you'd, you'd read some Bible in the morning or maybe in the afternoon, and you'd do your prayers. And the Catholics wanted to be excused from that. And so, you know, they would come to some compromises locally, you know, and, you know, locally you can always kind of work things out locally, but, but that's not what they wanted. The, the, the nativists uh, didn't want the Catholic Bible in the schools at all. So they came, to, uh, they came up with a deal where they would, uh, okay, you can use your own Bible, but you can't have any uh, notes or criticism in it, which was the Dewey Bible. So you, you can use your own Bible, but you can't use the Catholic Bible. You know, and uh, so that was uh, that was a big deal. I mean, and that led to a big rally in March, uh, a couple of months before the riots in Kensington. Yeah. And yeah, Ken is absolutely right about you know what's going on inside the public schools or the common schools as they were called at the time. Um, but I just want to add also that it wasn't just the use of the Bible explicitly. It was also that. A lot of the other materials, the primers and things like that, that were being used in the classroom, materials that were being, um, that different evangelical um, organizations were trying to get school children to read, you know, youths, penny gazettes and things like that, were very explicitly anti-Catholic. You know, the thinking being that you can sort of get to the children first and figure out how to make them American, and in order to do that, you had to get them 
onto the King James Bible. You had to get them thinking that the Pope was the Antichrist. You had to get them thinking that American democracy, freedom, and the King James Bible were completely fused. And so there were all of these other much more casual ways of even getting that ideology into school children's heads and into the classroom. Now, being a nativist is not a Philadelphia problem exclusively in the middle part of the 19th century. Uh, how did nativism shape the big picture of American politics in the 19th century? I think Philadelphia is a great place to see, you know, because you have to think about, well, why was it so big here? You know, why weren't the riots everywhere? And I think that that goes back to the religious diversity that was here. You know, I mean, if everyone is just reading the King James Bible and everybody believes the exact same thing and is doing the exact same thing in the classroom, then there's not going to be any kind of tension or even conversation about whether or not this is right and should be what's done. But because you had that incredible diversity here in Philly, you have this, I mean, you know, when Penn called it a holy experiment, it kept bearing itself out generation after generation as the diversity just continued to increase. So you had to have the conversation here and you had to figure out how to, have it, how to get it done here a little bit more quickly than in other places. So I think perhaps part of the reason why it was violent here is because it had to happen here first. And that we were sort of, you know, I, I can get very rah-rah about Philadelphia for good reason, because this is an incredible place. But, you know, I think it, we, we, had to, we had to be a bit of a test case in it because we had the diversity that required us to struggle with those questions. The, um, the Nativist Party, I guess, was founded in, the, in Germantown originally in the late 30s, right after the Panic of 1837. I think that they came along maybe a year or two after. But it died out. It's sort of like the time wasn't right. You know, it's sort of like a, you know, a populist movement you know, fizzles out very quickly because it wasn't so popular after all. But it, it picked up steam later on, and it was founded in New York and transferred to Philly, and Philly becomes a center point. You know, a couple of really great speakers here that, that, that were, uh, you know, very good orators, so that sort of helped it. And, and, and I guess it's the timing, you know, is why, you know, like at that time the Democrats uh, were getting more powerful, you know. And uh, the Jacksonian Democrats, a lot, of, a lot of the Irish Catholics were Democrats. The, the people on the fringes, the people below South and above Rhine, Rhine tended to be your, your Democrats, and the city was your Whigs, and I guess, uh, and, and the Republicans weren't around yet. So uh, the, uh, yeah, timing, you know, and, and like she was saying, the, the diversity, uh, economic times, you know. Earlier on, we mentioned African-Americans in Philadelphia. We've really been uh, pitting the nativists and the Irish against one another, but where do they fit into this, this entire dichotomy? Uh, for the Irish Catholics, as I mentioned earlier, wherever they live, the African-Americans tend to live next to them, you know? And uh, it was true over here in uh, what then would have been Passionc, or up in Fairmount, or what would have then been Spring Garden, and, and down this way as well. In, in South War, and the uh, the Irish Catholics, they were at the bottom of the barrel, you know, and so were the African Americans, and they they tend to fight each other, you know. When you, and there was several riots, a number of riots before the Nativist riots, uh, and some of them involved African Americans and, and Irish, and and, they, and people that maybe later became Nativists. So they were fighting for the same jobs, really, and housing. You know. 
Yeah, and it's, you know, the, the sort of ideology of nativism has a racial component to it, you know, and it, in its way of classifying and categorizing who is American and who isn't. Um, so I think that, you know, there's, as Ken was saying, that it's certainly, we have to think about the competition between people who are both considered outcasts by the mainstream Protestant moneyed elite establishment, but, you know, there's also that nativism is also about defining and categorizing people racially as well as religiously, and so that's a, that's a part of the idea, of the idea, ideology. Mm. Well. A number of the nativists were abolitionists, which, you know, it's hard for me to get my head around that, but it, it was true. When, when the nativism, uh, the northern things broke up, there was an element that were, were abolitionists and joined the Republican Party, and then other elements went elsewhere. We mentioned earlier also that there were Irish Protestants involved in this story, not Irish Catholics as well. Where does an Irish Protestant fit into this? There had been, in the 1830s, there was a riot between Irish Catholics and Irish Protestants in Philadelphia. We liked to riot back then about anything and everything. Um, so, you know, when we, I, I mentioned earlier that it wasn't until after the riots that the huge numbers of Irish famine Catholic immigrants come in here. Um, but there were much higher numbers of Irish Protestants already here. And, you know, certainly there's something to be said for the, we've kind of had to do it and we've made it to this certain space and now, you know, these other folks with a shared ethnic background and a shared national background that we have, even if those conflicts from Ireland were not transported between the two of them, I think it would be safe to say there'd be some tension anyway from the generation that had arrived before that would have, you know, not necessarily wanted to be associated with them, even though they might have had a very similar sounding brogue, right? Um, so it's kind of multi-layered problem there. Hmm. The, the, no, I was going to say the the riots uh, that that uh, she mentioned. There was there was a riot in Kensington, same place as the Nativist riots at the Nanny Goat Market, where Irish and, and Catholic actually fought together, and, and uh, they were, you know. Uh, fighting with folks that were being, you know, charging less money to do their reading. Previously, we've mentioned uh, the use of Bibles in schools. In a lot of ways, uh, the particular incident we're dealing with is set off by a Bible in a school issue. Could we talk about that, that event? Well, the, the Master Street School, which is up in the, right across about a half a block from the Nanny Goat Market, which is sort of the heart of the Irish community in West Kensington, it was there that they were using the King James Bible and that, that some parents brought it up to the local minister, worked his way up to the, uh, the bishop of Philadelphia, and they, and they tried to work out a deal. And there was a, a hold on, on reading the Bible. And, or, and then Councilman Clark, who was the, he was the big Irish guy. He was a master weaver, boss weaver, uh, probably the wealthiest guy in West Kensington, on the Board of Education, so it's his responsibility to look into this kind of stuff. And he talked to the principal up there, uh, and. Uh, the teacher, uh, Louisa Bedford, and uh, he told her, listen, it's my recommendation that just stop reading the Bible for now until this thing gets worked out in the, in the courts or whatever. Uh, but it's ultimately, it's your responsibility to make the decision. But if you want my advice, do that. And before you know it, the rumor was on the street by some evangelical Presbyterian guy that 
Councilman Clark tore up the Bible and threw it out the window. <laughs> That's what it turned into. And that led to the big rally in March of 1844 at Commissioner's Hall at Frankfurt and Master, which was the uh, city hall, so to speak, for Kensington. And most of the politicians that were there, the Kensington commissioners, were, were nativists and the ministers of the local church, churches and stuff. And it, it was big, it was like overflowing, no, not enough room inside, that mobs of people outside. And, 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 and uh, yeah, that, that's, that's what happened up there, and that was the beginning of it. A lot of this comes to head in, in May of 1844. There's a political rally held. Uh, why is that a bad idea based on the location? The, the little background to that is uh, the major nativist speakers, like somebody like Louis Levin or, or uh, Peter Skin Smith, I think his name was, they wouldn't come up and speak in Kensington because the nativists in Kensington wouldn't have their meeting in the Third Ward Kensington, which was the Irish neighborhood. Uh, the Third Ward nativist group always had their meetings over in the second ward across Frankfurt Avenue in a safe Protestant neighborhood because the Protestants told and the Catholics told them, listen, you, you try to bring that stuff up here and we'll make sure every stone in that building is torn down and no stone will be touching another. So they never would come up there. And Levin said, I'm not coming up there unless the third ward nativists speak in the third ward of Kensington. And, and so that's what eventually happened. They had the rally down in, in Independence Hall the state yard, and uh, they said we're going to, you know, meet at Kensington, and, and and they found a lot. They were going to meet at this guy John Gee's house, who by chance, not, was right across the street from St. Michael's Church, and uh, and uh, Gee finally said, oh, no, not here, you know, not here, and uh, so they decided to use an empty lot. Therefore, they're not in anybody's house or building, so they can't burn it down or something like that. And that, that's how it wound up on that lot at, at, at Master and, and Second Street. What do you think they're hoping to accomplish doing something that was so obviously meant to incite uh, ill will from the, from the Irish Catholics? I would imagine they were trying to get a reaction out of them for sure. They got it. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. What well, happened? And I think it's also, you know, rioting and burning a church down, which I know we haven't gotten there yet, but just to kind of give us some background, I mean, this is about space, right? This is a spatial tension. You, burning someone's property down or church down is wiping their house of worship off the map or wiping their shelter off the map. And so I think a lot of the, the, the very point of it was, you know, this is our America and we're coming to take it back. And this is you know, where are you going to go? You're going to go into the neighborhood of the other peoples. And although, you know, the symbolic importance of the Independence Hall area has grown over time, you know, so we don't want to read back to then the meaning that it holds today, certainly, but it did have some symbolic importance. So it was a, it was a gathering site. It was, you know, a, a, a site that was centrally located. So in each each, each move of the nativists throughout the rioting, both in May and then in July, is it's real spatial calculations. Uh, I should also add that that empty lot was next to the school, the Master Street School. So if you're going to you argue and yell about the Bible, why not do it right where the school is? They wanted a reaction from the Catholics, and they got it. What happens? Well, they went up on Friday, May 3rd, and uh, they, 
they didn't really go up armed, and the Catholics really weren't ready and armed. It was just sort of maybe a little testing of each other out. And they were met with, you know, brickbat and stuff like that, as they say in the newspapers back then. And they were pretty much stoned and chased out of town and, and uh, ran down 2nd Street or whatnot. And they took the stage that they had made and they smashed it up and made a bonfire and celebrated their victory temporarily. And the nativists, you know, went home and vowed to come back on Monday. Uh, well, it turned out that that's when they did come back on May 6th. And, that's the beginning of the three days of rioting. Many people look at this as a flashpoint. Take us through the riots in Kensington. Well, after that Friday, when, when the nativists were, were, uh, weren't really prepared for any kind of uh, violent action against them, and they were stoned and chased out of, of Kensington, they, they vowed to come back to Kensington, and, and they did. They did uh, on Monday, May 6th, they met again downtown at the Independence Hall and they had their meeting and there were calmer heads trying to calm everybody down like let's you know and that was one of the reasons they weren't going to meet right away uh, they wanted the weekend to, to lay over and then maybe people would calm down and, and, and the uh, uh, they didn't win people said no let's convene the Kensington and the, the, the people that were trying to make peace got shouted down and they marched up to Kensington and they came to that lot again and they were going to have their meeting on May 6th in the afternoon, around 4 o'clock or so. And uh, they started the meeting, and, and, and during the meeting, uh, a big rainstorm came along and started pouring, a downpour came along. And about a half a block away was the market house. And it ran the length of a whole block, like 240 feet. Uh, brick pillars with a, a, a you know, pavilion-type wooden roof. At the north end was stalls where people would sell their goods. And on the southern end was more of an open space, and you would have meetings there. So that's where the nativists went, and they were going to reconvene in the market house. Now, the, the Nanny Goat Market, American, it was called the Washington Street Market, they nicknamed it Nanny Goat. That was the heart of Irish Kensington. The church was right down the street. Right across the street is the Hibernia Hose Company, a volunteer Irish Catholic fireman's company, which were notoriously violent in the 1830s and 40s. And, and that's where they decided to reconvene your meeting. And the, uh, before Levin was the guy who was speaking when, when the rain came, before he even had a chance to speak, people started arguing and scuffling. Uh, a Protestant pulled out a rifle, uh, or a guy pulled out a pistol, two pistols. And uh, you touched, well, he was talking about Levin, you touch him and I'll shoot you. And you know, he's always a braver guy. You ain't gonna shoot anybody. And while well, he shot him, Patrick, uh, Fisher, I think his name was, he got shot in the face. And he was the first guy wounded, Protestant was the first guy shot it. And almost immediately, the, the Irish Catholics ran out of the stall, and fighting ensued right in that area between the stall and the, and the Hibernian Hose Company. And then as they sort of separated, a volley of gunfire comes out from the Hibernian Hose Company. And, and, and people start getting shot. And the Catholics uh, ran, they were chased by Protestants, and they sort of set them up. Because when, when they ran about a block down Master Street and got to Germantown and turned the corner, there was Irishmen standing in line with rifles and just let them have it. And uh, this is when George Schiffler's killed, the first person killed, a young boy. He becomes the martyr. Uh, his, his mother is a widow and dependent on his support. He's only 18, 19 years old, blah, blah, blah. He was holding the American flag, but wouldn't let it touch the ground. 
Well, if you read all the accounts, it's not really true. I mean, she's a widow, yeah, because her husband just had killed himself the previous year. And, and yeah, he had a flag, but it was a, he had stuck it in the uh, market house, uh, and, he really, and he wasn't running around with it. But that's beside the point. Uh, you know, you know, it's always good to have a good martyr. So that, that, that initial shock of the nativists of, of being gunned down by the Irish, that they totally were not aware of, of that. And that was sort of the end of that little rioting. And then they went back uh, downtown. They come back at nighttime. They're going to try to burn. Uh, there's a lot of details. I'll just gonna, I'll go through it a lot of, rather quickly. Uh, they want to burn down the nunnery. So they start gathering around the convent. And uh, a, a novice comes to the door, a young girl preparing to become a nun. And, uh, you know, no one would ever hit a nun. Well, they hit her with a brick and knocked her out. Some brave Irishman, as the, as the newspaper said, got in there, got them out of there, and, and, and just as they started to try to torch the nunnery, the Irish were up on top of uh, Coors Temperance Grocery Store across the street and, and let a, a volley of fire down on, on, on the nativists, killing two of them. Uh, but the key thing of that, and that sort of ended that part of that uh, rioting on, on the first day, Monday, May 6th, but in the crowd, what was uh, sheriff, uh, the sheriff of the city and, and, and the uh, head of the militia, Cadwalder, I think was there. And they had come up to see if it, you know, it was necessary to bring the militia up, you know, out. Because uh, there was you know, a lot of controversy about bringing the militia out. They weren't paid sometimes, stuff like that. And, and so, yeah, it was very obviously we need the militia, you know, because the, the sheriff and his posse were, were totally outmatched by the, the amount of firepower. So that's the first day of rioting. That ends. They valley, you know, they vow to come back the next day. They meet at Independence Hall. Now they come up, the nativists, they're armed. And immediately, they don't even try to have a meeting. They immediately attack the Hibernia Hose Company, try to smash the door down. Well, the Irish weren't just sitting around waiting for them. They had been preparing all day. There was uh, reports of cases of rifles being delivered to the, uh, the next block up from the uh, master and American was uh, on Cadwalder. There was four courtyards, and those little courtyards were all packed with Irish Catholics. And they sort of acted as the headquarters area for, for, for the Irish Catholics. And they just let a, a rain of fire down on the nativists, and they killed a couple more guys there. And uh, that, that backed them up. And then you know, they regrouped and came back up. And uh, a guy, Peter Albright, ex-militia guy, he tried to form them as a company of men and, and you know, information and stuff like that. But they were exposed. This was the Irish Catholic neighborhood. They had the houses. They were hiding in them. It's the reason why they burnt them out, because they weren't making much progress standing out in the open. They were just being slaughtered. And, and even Albright and his uh, uh, 25 men with rifles got, got pushed back, uh, you know, and when you look at that engraving that was done as contemporary to the riot, you see a line of men with rifles, and that, that's Peter Albright and his guys that he rallied, and uh, so that was pretty much it. That was the second day of rioting, but during that fighting, they did start lighting places on fire, and the wind, a lot of the buildings were, were, were wood, a lot of things started burning. It struck, you know, it jumped over to the market house. Uh, the market house winds up burning out. The Hibernia Coast Company gets burned out. Several blocks of homes wind up getting burned down. The next, the militia finally does come out, and that's, you know, the writing stops that on, on Tuesday, May 7th. But then uh, a series of cat and mouse games with the militia and the nativists go on. 
where you know there's a fire there and the militia runs over. Now there's a fire there and the militia has to run there. And and and, and every time they're moving, men are being taken away from from buildings they're supposed to be watching and stuff like that. So the next day, by then the Irish Catholics are pretty much have left the neighborhood. The militia's protecting the Irish Catholics, you know, sort of making sure nobody kills them, I guess, when they pack up and leave the neighborhood. And uh, some of them are going out to Camax Woods up around Temple University. Others are going to other places. There's some Irish aid societies go to form, helping these guys out. And uh, but the natives come back, and a lot of the, a lot of these are kids. A lot of the rioters were kids, teenagers. You know, like just like in Palestine, when you see kids throwing stones at the Israelis, this is what's going on in Kensington between Irish and Protestants as well. Yeah. We've recently seen that uh, in Baltimore this past summer, yeah. young people yeah. leading a lot of this sort of chaotic, uh, chaotic riots. So the third day, they come up, they start burning houses. They were looking for any house where a gun was fired from to see if there was arms there. And in some cases, they did find arms. In some cases, they just torched the house. And then they were able to you know, get the militia, you know, they caused enough trouble in the neighborhood to get the militia to sort of leave St. Michael's somewhat unprotected. And, and St. Michael's gets burnt down. And, and, and now they, you know, they break into a big chorus when the steeple crashes in and starts singing the Battle of the Boeing, which brings again the, the uh, Orangeman element in, in, into the nativist riots. And then they march after they, and then they burn down the nunnery. And they go over to Councilman Clark's house and ransack it. They didn't burn it because he was next to a Protestant house. So, so they didn't want to catch the Protestant house on fire. And eventually they walk by St. Peter's, but the Germans are they're still building St. Peter's at this time. Presumably the Germans are armed. And it's really not a German-Irish thing. You know, it's, a, it's an Irish-Protestant, Irish-Catholic thing. So they left the Germans alone. And they went down and they burnt down St. Augustine's. The mayor got up on a, on a wagon, tried to calm him down. He was stoned hit with rocks, so he fled. They burnt down St. Augustine. St. Augustine may have been a target because the priest there was a, a real agitator. He was sort of like a, a Catholic version of the nativist. He was a real uh, Protestant uh, hater. <laughs> and uh, he had a great library, which was destroyed. But when they went down and tried to torch other churches, like St. John's over on 13th Street, or St. Mary's and St. Joe's, the militia was out and stopped them. They were ready to shoot them dead. And, and that sort of calmed down the nativists. I mean, once the, once the, the riots started spilling into the city of Philadelphia, the, the patricians of the city said, whoa, stop. You know, as long as it up in Kensington and just the Irish Catholics were being burned down, it didn't seem to be a big of a deal. But, but then they put a stop to it downtown. And that, that ends the nativist riots in Kensington. With all of this violence and destruction, was there ever an investigation? Who was to blame? Uh, the aftermath of the riots uh, resulted in 40 criminal trials. 65 people were arrested, the uh, majority Irish Catholics, as you might expect, since the whole municipal government, uh, county government, was were Protestants, more or less. Uh, some men were charged with murder, found guilty. Others were pardoned. Uh, one particular guy, John Taggart, he was beaten so badly by the nativists, and even though he was accused with murder, they let him go. He was beaten that bad. He, he looked like he was dead, <laughs> and he was beaten so bad. And, and two guys escaped to Ireland. The guy that actually killed Schiffler escaped to Ireland. Uh, 20 witnesses testified to that. There were over 185 witnesses, and then another 100 witnesses that they could not find uh, who, that, who they were. They, they, they never did find the names of people. Perhaps people from outside the area were involved. The uh, civil trials, there was a, 
at least uh, 30 or 40 civil trials, uh, people suing the government for damages. There was a, a, a statute, a law, that said if, uh, as long as you weren't involved in the rioting and your building was burnt down, you could sue for damages, uh, the government. And people did. And uh, so a lot of people were compensated, some people not as much as they would have liked. St. Michael's certainly only got, you know, enough to maybe put walls up. The very expensive painting was burnt up with it and, and other stuff like that. Uh, you know, people were charged with arson, found guilty. A lot of the Protestants got off. And, and I think it was sort of, you know, uh, the end result is, is that, uh, you know, it was madness. Everybody got caught up in it. Normally you're nice people. So only people that actually kill somebody. I mean, they kill someone in a riot and they wanted like the Eastern Penitentiary for three or four years. You know, so sort of like self-defense is But the trials were actually quite interesting in America. It was followed all over America because there's a lot of precedents in it. Like, does the militia have the right to come out and shoot people if they're not being, uh, you know, if they're not going to be bodily harmed? Like, if I'm just burning or looting, can I shoot the guy, you know? Uh, so, and it's interesting that uh, Dallas, uh, who was vice president under Van Buren, a Democrat, he defended a lot of the nativists on the murder trials. But when it came to the civil, because he, you know, he was looking for the Irish Democrat vote, <laughs> and he became the vice president later that year, and the following year. Uh, but when it came to the civil trials, he defended the city. So, uh, now, those were in May of 1844. It's not the end of our story. We're in front of St. Philip Neri Catholic Church. Uh, in July, we see hostility rise up again. Can we talk about what happens here in Southwark? So the July riots were so much more about those symbols of Americanism and displays of Americanism and patriotism and the histrionics of a July 4th parade and the histrionics of July 4th, generally speaking, not even the parade, but Catholics sort of anticipated it. You know, they knew this was going to be coming because, of course, the conversation is still continuing. As Ken has discussed, the trials are going on. You know, this is still front page news every day, the aftermath of the May riots. So Catholics sort of have an idea that something's going to go down as we're getting closer and closer to the 4th. And, you know, something was going to go down. There was going to be, by some accounts, 90, 100,000 people came to the city for the parade or were already in the city taking part in the parade. And the parade essentially had all of the same arguments that Protestants had been making against Catholics kind of brought to life. You know, so you have an eagle reading a Bible and, you know, a Lady Liberty reading a Bible, which is, you know, you can clearly see on the float is the King James Bible. But Catholics in their preparation for this had actually been given the okay to stockpile weapons, fearing that violence would start again. Um, and so they were stockpiling weapons here in the church behind us. And when Protestants found out, and as the, you know, again, these histrionics, as they grow and grow and grow, violence does break out again. The militia was here a lot more quickly, so everyone was sort of prepared for this to happen this time. Um, but 14 more people were killed. And, you know, fortunately, those riots didn't last as long. There was nowhere near the same amount of damage, either of property or of life, but they did continue into 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 July and became a sort of fused with the July 4th symbols of Americanism and patriotism. Dealing with these specific July riots, I have to bring this up. There was a cannon involved in this. Could we talk about that? There was a cannon yeah, involved. The, uh, yes, there was a cannon involved uh, on both sides. The militia had their own cannon. 
and so did the nativists. They had taken one off of a ship that was in the Delaware, which is only a couple blocks from where we are. And they put rags around, they tied rags around the wheels so they could quietly roll this cannon up near to the militia and do some damage. In fact, I think they took it into the back of the church and they tried to uh, blow out the back of the, the church and it didn't have much effect. But uh, the uh, militia also let go of their cannons. I mean, it, it's kind of bizarre to think <laughs> that there's a riot going on with both sides having cannons shooting at each other. And like she said, people were killed. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> nativists also had a, 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 the, you know, did the old clothesline trick with a rope. It was dark. When the cavalry came down the street, they hoisted up the rope and did some damage to the cavalry. And, uh, and there was, uh, you know, a, uh, several of the militia were killed. So that, that's a big deal. You know? Up in Kensington, yeah, I think one guy may have gotten sick and died from just, you know, got the flu or whatever. But uh, the militia wasn't harmed at all up in Kensington. Katie, how does Philadelphia recover from something like this? Well, in a number of different ways. Um, you know, we can think about the, the aftermath for the school system, the aftermath for the city itself, and the consolidation of municipal services. Um, there's an important part of these riots, too, that I think we forget when we only talk about the violent aspects of them. And that's that a lot of the Catholic churches, so all of the Catholic churches were threatened and or physically attacked. But the people who were guarding them were often Protestants. And so we have some stories about, you know, the Protestants who were guarding St. John the Evangelist on 13th and Market, for instance, who said, you know, the priests left us behind some wonderful whiskey and some meats and cheeses. And it was so nice of them to do that. So while we were here for 72 hours guarding their church, we had a wonderful time and then smoked some cigars. You know, so there's all these kinds of encounters and everyday ways that people who might not have been the folks out on the streets sort of, you know, rumbling with each other, but they got to know about one another's existence and one another's struggles and what was happening in each other's communities. So I think that's something that gets overlooked in the, in the way that the city recovers, is that, well, now we realize that we're all here struggling in the same city for a lot of the same things together and trying to make sense of this place. And I don't mean to be Pollyanna about it, because that's a struggle that we still have today. And it's almost exactly the same question. How do we be here together, struggling for what we want for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, and yet be part of one city and be unified in that way? Um, and it's a work in progress. In, in Kensington, a year after, almost to the day, a year after the riots, they hired 40 policemen. There was five wards in Kensington at the time. And there was uh, eight, I think eight, maybe it was eight wards, five policemen in each ward. So now they actually had a police force in Kensington. Eventually the city consolidates in the, with the county and you, know, you have a, a better policing uh, apparatus where you can't just run across the border to the next district and, you know, and maybe they will help you or maybe they won't. And then after the July riots, as soon after that was the founding of the parochial school system. So that settled the whole, what Bible are we going to read in school business? Because the Catholics then had Catholic schools to go to. It's curious though, if I could just jump in on that with the, with the Bible reading in the schools, there's, you know, the, the, the question of religiosity in the public school system still isn't solved today in the United States. 
Um, and we have in 1969, we have another huge test case in Abington, which is you know, only five miles outside of the city, of struggling with this question of religion, Protestant Christianity, Bible reading and prayer in public schools. You know, so although for many Catholics, Catholic schooling becomes an option, for a lot of other Catholics, they're still going to be in public schools, still having to deal with this, with this question of, you know, what, how much religion is, you know, can religion be taught at all, which it can be, and I think it should be. I think if we all knew about each other's religious traditions, or if we knew about religious history in general, I think we'd be a lot better for it. But, you know, the question of can religion be taught versus can religion be inculcated is a question that is still very much part of our conversation about all of our institutions in America. Based on everything we've just discussed, Pope Francis is visiting Philadelphia in a few weeks. 2016 in the presidential race, it's all about immigration. Do you see any parallels to today's politics in this and is there a takeaway from it? Hmm. I think there's very strong parallels, you know, the. Um, any soundbite from Donald Trump sounds an awful lot like Protestant nativists to me. You know, they don't belong here, get them out. Uh, you know, trotting out the same old incorrect and horrifying stereotypes about, you know, people who are simultaneously stealing all of the jobs and are lazy. You know, it's unfortunately, it's the same kind of rhetoric that we hear today in the public square and especially in the ramp up to a presidential election. The, uh, it was unfortunate and horrible that we had the pedophile scandals in the Catholic Church and the cover-up was, was more horrible. And uh, so that, that, that puts the church in a difficult position, I think, you know, to say anything, you know. and. Uh, so I think that allows people now to really come down on the church a lot in ways maybe they wouldn't have before, before the sex scandals, and uh, that, that's quite unfortunate. Now, Katie, you've been in preparation for the papal visit, working on a project of your own. Could you talk about that? Yeah, so I'm the producer and senior historian of Urban Trinity, the story of Catholic Philadelphia, in which we um, cover the 350 years of Catholic history in this city. And um, from the perspective of the city and the people, both Catholic and non-Catholic Philadelphians, and uh, yeah, we'll be premiering during the week of Pope Francis's visit, and we're really looking forward to it. Where can we see that? So you can see it on Tuesday night, September 22nd on 6ABC. Um, it will also premiere at the Kimmel Center on Wednesday, September 23rd. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for a future episode, please visit our website at PCNTV.com. For everyone here in Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. Mm -hmm.